welcome. Welcome to this grand round session entitled Addressing the Elephant in the Room, Shame and Sentinel Emotional Events in Health Professions Learners. I'm Tony Artino, and this event is being co-sponsored by my office, the Office of the Associate Dean for Evaluation and Educational Research, and our Resiliency and Wellbeing Center. So thanks to them for uh, teaming up on this. Um, to get us started, let me first introduce our distinguished guest and speaker today, and that's Dr. Will Bynum. Dr. Bynum is currently an Associate Professor of uh, Family Medicine in the Duke University School of Medicine. Prior to arriving at Duke in October of 2017, he served seven years on active duty in the U.S. Air Force, and his military service included four years of faculty duties in the National Capital Consortium Family Medicine Residency Program, and a deployment to East Africa as the Senior Medical Director of a Special Operations Command. So thank you, Will, for your service. Uh, Dr. Bynum currently serves as the Duke Family Medicine Residency Program Director and Faculty Advisor to the Duke School of Medicine Student Wellness Committee. His primary academic interest centers on the role of self-conscious emotion, and we'll learn about what that is today, in uh, the medical learning experience. And he's conducting this program research of research through his PhD in health professions education, which he's currently working on at Maastricht University in the Netherlands. On a more personal note, I've had the pleasure of working with Will on several projects over the past five years. And I can honestly say he's one of the smartest and most passionate medical education scholars I know. He's also just a fantastic human being. And so we're thrilled to have Will here today to speak with us about shame in health professions learners. Before we start, let me just mention that a quick admin note. If you've got questions for Will, he's going to field those at the end of the talk. But you can use the chat box to, to write out your question. And then at the end, I'll moderate those questions and read them out to Will. And with that, I'll turn the podium over to Dr. Bynum. Thanks, Tony. Um, making me blush at the beginning of... Uh... The session get me all flustered over here. Uh, I, I it's really special to be here um, with all of you, um, Tony. Thank you so much, and and to the co-sponsors for the invitation. Um, as Tony mentioned, uh, he and I are very close, and I've been the recipient of phenomenal mentorship from him over these last five years. That's really morphed into a great friendship and a lot of collaboration. And and he's been a, a real force in a lot of the work that I'm going to present today. Um, so you're lucky to have him. Um, and uh, and again, I, I'm so thankful for the chance to be here. Um, I'm, I'm going to just start by saying I don't have any disclosures to report um, as I tell you about this, this really powerful and I think increasingly recognized um, construct in medical education. And, and we're going to go on an exploration of, of this emotion of shame um, and the role that it plays. Um, or can play in, in the experience of, of learning medicine. Um, and so in, in order to get us all on the same page before I really dive deeply, I wanna give this very basic um, definition of, of shame. And, and I'm gonna expound upon the psychology that leads to this and related emotions in a little bit. Um, but just to get us started, um, I want you to conceptualize shame. And this is based on leading theory from psychology is, is an emotion that occurs when an individual assesses themselves to be globally flawed, deficient, or unworthy in some way, and, and often in response to a triggering event. So it's a global negative evaluation of the self. And I'm gonna tell you about um, our research in shame, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you about some of my own experiences with it, and then ultimately what we can do about it. Um, and, and I'm gonna start by using a metaphor of fire that we um, conceptualize in one of our studies. Um, insofar as, as shame can be a significant emotional reaction and experience that occurs within an individual. So it is a uniquely individualized emotion uh, because it arises from a series of appraisals and attributions within an individual. But critically, our, our work and the work of others shows that it occurs as that individual engages with the environment around them. So context and situation really matter. And um, I'm gonna, one of the, the key things I want you to take away from this talk is that is the desire and willingness to, to open up and talk about shame in your environments and, and in your own experiences. And in order to hopefully make you um, comfortable doing that, I'm gonna do the same thing myself to get us started. So I'm gonna tell you a story um, of shame that happened to me. And it's really the story that, that led to much of this work. Um, it occurred when I was a second year resident in family medicine. Uh, I was in, um, I was on labor and delivery early in my second year, and this was 
the, the first um, experience of being a senior resident with increasing responsibility, particularly um, on the labor and delivery unit where I was the only resident. Um, this was a kind of eat your young type of environment. Um, and it was not a particularly um, pleasant place to learn uh, and uh, certainly to be a learner. And there were some characteristics about this environment that were really notable when I reflect back on the experience I had there. Um, it, was, it was an intimidating environment. It was very high stakes. Um, I had the perception pervasively that everyone around me was incredibly capable and they were, and that I really wasn't. Um, the organizational culture was different than what I was used to in family medicine. The learning curves were frequent and oppressive. Um, and there was a lot of posturing. And by that, I mean that despite the fact that people were in vulnerable situations and uncertain situations frequently, there was not much external display of that vulnerability. Um, and rather, it was um, replaced by a lot of posturing such that you knew people were vulnerable and, and having these very human moments, but, um, but they didn't express those things. And that made it feel pretty unsafe to express it yourself. And then there was sort of the relative loss of support network. Um, interestingly, I've told a lot of shame stories because I've had a lot of shame experiences um, in my career and life. And almost every time I tell one, I, I use this exact same slide. I don't edit any of it. And I think it's because some of these characteristics of this environment are common in environments in which we traverse in, in healthcare. And in many ways, they might be most prevalent or um, salient in a transition period of which we um, endure many in, in medical education and in medicine. So this was a major transition period characterized by these certain features of this environment that were very important in this overall experience of shame that I had. Within this environment, people, um, all of us are engaging in self-evaluations uh, and um, we're constantly self-evaluating whether we realize it or not. And in this environment, my self-evaluation was one that was marked by questions. It was questions about myself, questions about how I was going to perform, whether I was good enough to do the job that was expected of me, um, whether I belonged in an organization that seemed quite different, um, especially from kind of a value standpoint than, than my own. Um, and then that the therefore statement that followed all of that was, you know, do I need to change myself in order to better meet um, these re requirements or responsibilities to fit in and, um, and to assimilate the way I needed to to be effective? And I want to just acknowledge that as I've learned more about this topic in my own experience in medicine, um, you know, as a white male, those questions, having to ask those questions do not bring um, the additional challenge of, of having to be outside or existing outside of the dominant norms that define those environments, uh, which apply an additional level of assimilation pressure and challenge. So I had a lot of self-doubt going into this experience. Um, as someone in the dominant norm in medicine, and I've increasingly learned about the differential experiences of those outside of those norms and how much more pressure and challenge that can apply. There was a lot of, um, a lot of the self-doubt I think may have been relatively um, on, the, on the sort of the end of um, healthy humility, um, but there was, I think there was also some kind of pervasive imposterism here where I really didn't believe in my own abilities um, to do this job or to rise to the occasion, even though there was plenty of evidence to support the fact that I could um, prior to that. I just didn't recognize it and I didn't believe in it at the time. And so there was some imposterism that, that made that transition into this new role pretty difficult. So within this environment and in the midst of this self-evaluation, something happened. So there was a triggering event um, or, or kind of a catalyst, if you will. And, um, and it occurred when I was coming off a 24 hour shift uh, early in this rotation, um, I was exhausted. I was getting ready to leave and, and a patient came in having a placental abruption. And um, for those of you who, who don't know, a placental abruption is, is an obstetrical emergency. It's, it's when the placenta is, is prematurely separating from the uterus and the baby's blood supply is threatened. And, and, and this was a pretty dire situation. The, the baby was in distress. Um, the mother, the head was beginning to crown and the decision was made to, to deliver the baby expeditiously with a vacuum assist device, um, which is a way to help um, deliver the baby through a suction cup that's applied to its head. And in the midst of a lot of chaos, I got pulled into the room um, for the chance to practice and learn an, an operative vaginal delivery. And before I knew it, um, 
I mean, I just recall a lot of commotion. I was delivering the baby. Um, I successfully delivered the baby with the use of the vacuum assist device. And the baby did fine, thank God. Um, but in the process of doing it, um, I caused a, a, just a really significant maternal injury, um, a, a very, very significant vaginal laceration that, you know, that went um, clearly to, to my um, immediate recognition and to everyone in the room's recognition, it went very, very wrong. It was one of those instances or experiences where you immediately know that you just screwed something up. And, um, and in pretty dramatic fashion in this case, because there were probably eight people around the bed, the pediatric team was in the room and the immediate feeling after recognizing that outcome was one of anxiety, fear, um, fight or flight. Um, I'll just borrow a, a quote from one of our studies, like my bowels fell out on the floor, um, just a sinking feeling in this unbelievable urge to, to hide and disappear. When I think about the imagery of this um, in my mind, in this memory, it, it was like I was standing under some very hot OR lights, like a bank of OR lights. And um, all I could see around me were people's eyes. And there were eyes of sort of horror or shock or judgment. And, and I was there very exposed and feeling incredibly uncomfortable and, and desiring to, to leave and get away. And, and I did that. Um, I, I handed off the vacuum and the baby to the, the obstetrician who took over <clears throat> and I just quietly left the room. Um, and in doing so, the only thing that was guiding my next steps um, or, or actions was just almost like a subconscious desire to get as far away from the room as possible. And so I, in kind of a daze, wandered to the other end of the hospital, found myself in a meditation room, um, alone on the other side of the room in a corner on the other side of a chair on the floor with my head in my hands, um, literally. And that's really where I hid for a couple of hours. And in the aftermath of, of that error in that room and in the days that followed was really, really jarring um, and really threw me off my axis. Um, in the midst of this catalyst, those questions in my head that the voice was whispering to me um, were now being screamed at me by that voice um, loudly. Uh, and they were no longer questions. They were now beliefs and statements about myself that I was incompetent, that I was unworthy, um, that I was someone that hurts people, um, that I was not talented enough, cool enough under pressure, smart enough to do the job that I was striving and working so hard to do. And then the therefore statement that followed now was much harsher and more challenging to deal with, which is that you don't belong. You don't, you aren't good enough. How are you going to come back tomorrow, the day after, the day after that, um, especially to a unit that I knew openly talked about and disparaged people who made errors in that environment. And I knew that because I'd heard them doing it about other people. And, and I, one of the only things I could think about in those that immediate aftermath was the perceived judgment and sort of um, conversation that was likely going on about me while I wasn't there. And, and that, that sort of self-judgment through someone else's eyes projected from someone else was really challenging. So this was hard. This was a, you know, I'm an emotionally intact guy. I would say um, I am someone who's always been fairly emotionally intelligent, I think. And this one threw me for a loop. Um, I did not know what I was going through. I was not prepared to deal with this. Um, and and there was a there was an aftermath and there was a recovery ultimately. And around the same time, I also just got out of a bad relationship, um, frankly, that um, had me kind of in a state of chronic shame. And, and in recovering from that and this event, um, I discovered shame as a construct. And I discovered it through Brene Brown, which is probably where many of us have, have heard about this before. And, and it was like a light bulb going off and a curtain being lifted because I had a term, I had a name for it. I had it normalized by a brilliant woman um, who's very approachable and makes it very real. And in the, in the midst of that um, discovery, I, I then began thinking about what does this mean for the rest of medical training? If, if I experienced this in the midst of a, a relatively routine event of a bad patient outcome, 
how much is this going on around me and in what capacity? And so um, this is around the time that I got linked up with Tony and the folks at USU and the master's program. And we just started theorizing about this and just reading about it and exploring about it. And um, in the in the aftermath of what we have since labeled a sentinel emotional event. So this was a, a sentinel event for me emotionally as a human and as a med medical trainee. Um, I, I went through this recovery process that ultimately led to a fundamental question. Um, and, and that question came from an, a, initially a literature review that, that delved deeply into the psychology literature um, where I found a lot written about the psychology of shame um, and associations that matter to us, like um, the association with depression and anxiety and PTSD and burnout, suicidality, um, all of these things we continue to grapple with. And here in the psychology literature was evidence that shame could be associated. And at the same time, I was um, kind of deep in the medical education literature is, is a new you know, growing baby scholar and, and found um, some exciting research about emotions and medical learning. Um, and then a myriad of ways in which the wellness of medical trainees is impaired or can be impaired. And despite the fact that there was signal in, in our literature for the presence of shame, it was rarely explicitly defined um, and even more rarely studied. It was, it was a near absence of, of, attention, direct attention paid to this experience of shame, save a few, a few papers. And so this sort of led to this like glaring gap in the literature that was both really exciting, really overwhelming. Um, and that was what is happening with shame and medical learners as they navigate the medical learning environment. Um, and so that led to uh, eventually you know, someone kind of kicking me in the butt and saying, you've got to actually start researching this. Um, I think it was Lara, Varpia, and maybe Tony as well. And so we did. And so we, we dove deeply into a qualitative research program. The, the goal of which is, is to bring this construct of shame out of the shadows and into the light. And, and to do that through a foundational question um, that does not presuppose how this occurs in medical trainees, but that, that seeks to understand and convey it. Um, qualitatively by asking how do medical trainees experience shame across the continuum of their education. And I'm, I'm not going to take you in, into any depth about our methodology. It's a very, it's a powerful and fascinating methodology called hermeneutic phenomenology. Um, but we use this qualitative methodology because it seeks to characterize the nature and meaning of a lived experience uh, or a construct in that, and within the context in which it occurs. So environment and context matter. And it also requires that researchers bring their own experiences of the phenomenon and their existing knowledge of it into the processes of data collection and analysis, which was critical because this work came from personal experience. Um, and so I'll just leave the, the methodology at that. We've written some papers about it. Um, I do really strongly recommend this methodology, particularly for those messier, personal, very complex and contextually influenced um, constructs like shame. This program has spanned three populations, um, started in medical residents and then medical students and then pre-medical students. Um, and that study we're, we're just now uh, about to publish. Um, in each of these, we, we approached um, the topic with a, a semi-structured interview that was preceded by some sort of elicitation technique in which we had, had the, the participant reflect on an experience of shame in their training. And then we delved deeply into that through the interview. Uh, and so I'm going to tell you, um, as I present the data, I'm going to present it in a way that that attends to what hermeneutics calls for, which is that we constantly consider the parts of that lived experience and in the whole of it. And, and it, we convey the whole through what are called the essences. So what are the deeper meanings and, and sort of meta structures that help us grasp the significance um, and the meaning of, of this construct in the context of, of um, the lived experience of of going through medicine. We use Tracy and Robin's theory of self-conscious emotion. Um, and uh, and we, we use this both to help frame our study as well as to ensure that when we were talking about shame, we were actually talking about shame and not a related construct. And so I'm gonna actually take you through this theory briefly um, for, the, for the really the sole purpose of helping to explain where these emotions come from and emphasize this, some of the steps and, and how knowledge of these steps can really change the way you approach teaching your own resilience and well-being and that of your trainees. 
So according to this theory, which is really a leading theory in psychology with a lot of empiric support, um, something happens, there's a triggering event. And as a result of that triggering event, the individual experience it engages in a self-evaluation. So it turns the person's attention inward. And, and that distinguishes the so-called self-conscious emotions of shame and guilt and pride and embarrassment from basic emotions like happiness and fear and elation, which can require, but don't, I mean, can include, but don't require a self-evaluation. So as a part of this inward look, we activate what these researchers call self-representations. The first set are our current self-representations. So how do I see and know myself right now in light of this triggering event? So my current self-representations after my error were very harsh. They were, I was seeing myself in a very specific way, in a very painful way. We also activate what are called our future or ideal self-representations. So who am I striving to become? Who do I wish I could have been in light of this triggering event? Um, how would my ideal self have acted? And, and what characterizes that ideal self and that person that I'm trying to become? And having activated, having activated these sets of self-representations, we make a determination about their congruence with one another. Are, if, if we've done something that causes us to view ourselves as closer to who it is we're trying to become, then we feel pride. So had I delivered the baby competently and sort of saved the day um, and not hurt anybody, I would have felt a strong sense of pride for a job well done. Um, and that would have included viewing myself as the type of person that I wanted to be in that situation, which was a safe, competent physician. If we view ourselves as further from the person we're trying to become, that um, we, the, the emotion that follow, follows are either shame or guilt. Okay, this is super important. So the, this distance between how I see myself now and who I'm trying to become, it does not feel good. So both shame and guilt are negatively valenced emotions that occur through recognizing ourselves as further from who we're trying to become. But there's a key and final attribution that distinguishes them from one another. And there's a lot of power in this. And that is on what do I place the blame for the occurrence of this triggering event? Is it something specific and unstable? Um, is it something circumstantial, situational, actionable um, that I can modify or that can be modified? And if so, the predominating emotion is guilt. Conversely, if we attribute the triggering event to something global, stable, fixed, difficult to change or unchangeable about ourselves, um, such as our intellect or our capability, our um, attention to detail, then the resulting emotion is shame. So shame being, you know, a, a self-talk that says I am bad, whereas guilt is I did a bad thing. Okay, what matters um, significantly, and psych the psychology literature is quite clear on this, is that the, the, the emotion that predominates um, as a result of these appraisals and attributions leads to specific action tendencies and effects to follow. So when we feel guilt, having recognized something we can fix as the cause of this incongruence, our natural tendency is to dissolve that tension and to make steps towards repairing, towards improving, towards growing, towards fixing that thing we've identified that might be broken or deficient. Um, and so in this case, I needed to, my case, I needed to practice more vacuum assist deliveries. I needed to be able to speak up when I was really tired. This was only the second vacuum assist delivery I'd ever done. Maybe I needed to tell someone that. Maybe this wasn't the best place to practice that. Maybe this was an obstetrical emergency and I saved the baby's life and a maternal injury was inevitable. All of those are circumstantial or action-based things in me that I can fix. And in recognizing those, it gives me a roadmap to fix them in order to take steps closer to who I'm trying to become. When we feel shame and we view ourselves either through our eyes or the eyes of others as deficient, broken, unworthy, flawed, the natural tendency is to hide. It's to prevent further reinforcement of that self-evaluation and self-belief. It's to avoid deepening that feeling or having others see us in the way we currently see ourselves. And so we tend to minimize, we, we disengage, we withdraw. There's a lot of distress that comes with it. And insofar as the action tendencies that follow, each of these emotions theoretically, and, and we have empiric support for this, um, drive very different approaches to the event that triggered it.
in that guilt is a more pro-social, pro-engaged, pro-learning emotion, and shame is a more um, anti-learning, anti-engagement, distancing emotion. Okay, so two, two really key caveats to this sort of dichotomization between these two. Um, one is this is a theory, and so it's artificially um, simplified. In any given emotional reaction, there's almost certainly a mix of these emotions and a whole lot of other things. But to the extent that one predominates over the other through these attributions and appraisals, there do appear to be important action tendencies and effects that follow. The second is that I don't want to say that shame is all bad. In fact, shame is also a pro-social emotion in that it's evolved, it's hung around, and it does serves a very important function in regulating our behavior, keeping us in line with social norms. Um, it's critical for a functioning society. And, and the last thing I want you to do is walk out of here thinking I'm telling you don't experience shame. Um, you know, that's the key component of psychopathology in many ways. So we need shame. It's the pathologized shame, the chronic, intensive, inappropriately experienced or levied shame that is problematic. It, same, same with guilt. I'm not also suggesting you walk around racked with guilt all day. That's not necessarily a healthy way to function. It is a negative emotion. But to the extent we can leverage guilt for growth is what I really want you to take away from this. Okay, so I'm going to pivot now um, with that sort of foundation into some of our findings and, and really drive this home in medical learning environments and then finish with what we can do about it. This is some of the self-talk from our research studies. So these are residents and medical students. And this is how they describe themselves in a shame state how they view themselves. And, and you'll notice, and this is just a sampling of this self-talk, um, just how globally negative it is, nonspecific. If, if you as a teacher are hearing this and trying to figure out how to help this person improve, it would be very hard to know how do you fix these things? And think about how hard it is for the person themselves. How do you fix I'm, I'm inadequate, inferior, a waste of space? So these, this is a good example of, of the, the negative global self-talk that can occur. We looked at what triggered shame. This is a sampling of triggers. Um, I just send you to our papers for a more comprehensive list. Um, but in residents, we found, not surprisingly, a lot of shame related to patient care, the most profound of which were um, events that consisted of medical errors leading to the deaths of patients. And um, there were two of 12 stories that included errors that, that the resident thought killed a patient, um, but also uh, showing emotion to a patient, recognizing impaired empathy with the patient. We had one. Um, one resident who at the end of a long day in the hospital or clinic would go home and, and sort of ruminate about all the ways she could have hurt someone that day and then feel shame for the mere potential that she could hurt someone. So very complex um, emotional experience when it came to dealing with patients. A lot of shame related to learning. I was, we were surprised by this at the time. I'm no longer surprised by it, um, but we found a significant amount of learning related shame. And we broke this into a couple of categories. One category were those triggers that we would consider to be normal or inevitable in the course of learning medicine, such as being wrong in public, struggling on a test, um, you know, presenting a patient and screwing up, um, being under below the average uh, in, in a class, things that are part and parcel of a learning experience, yet cause significant shame in, in some of the students who experience them. We also found a subset of, of these triggers that we would consider to be inappropriate not normal and not inevitable in learning medicine, such as being mistreated, being harshly interrogated, microaggressions, having um, being marginalized in a learning environment, being harshly treated in a time of struggle, events that occurred as residents were learning that not surprisingly caused significant shame and, and really never should have. Uh, and then the third was, was kind of um, an intermediate and that the only trigger in that were the, was the morbidity and mortality conference. And it could go either way, depending on how it was executed um, as, as something that could be very constructive or very destructive. Um, and, and then we found uh, shame related to personal goals, having a paper rejected, uh, some struggle outside of the hospital, failing to become a chief, et cetera. In medical students, um, a few highlights from, from our um, triggers here were uh, lots and lots of shame related to assessment, particularly objective assessment. Um, MCAT scores, shelf tests, um, USMLE was kind of the elephant in the room in this study, um, and not just the score itself, but struggled to prepare for it and the comparisons that people made as they, as they prepared. Um, we found um, an unfortunate amount of mistreatment in this study as well, peer-to-peer, -peer, supervisor-to-student, um, 
it, it could span, you know, microaggressions and those seemingly more minor um, triggers to to much more um, impressive ones. But yet, the shame that could follow did not necessarily follow that same trajectory. The shame could be profound even with a small, a seemingly small trigger. And then we found um, in this study more so than the first, and probably was just a function of of the people who were in each study. I don't think that there was something unique to this environment of these medical students. But underrepresentation was it was a very powerful undercurrent in the study, both as a possible shame trigger and a contributing factor, such that being outside of those dominant norms in an environment, either through demographic factors such as race or ethnicity, religion, sexual orientation or gender identity, or just perceiving yourself to be different. Um, someone who came from a different background, from a state school versus a private school, someone who expressed themselves differently, that experience of feeling or being different could significantly contribute to feelings of shame during the course of medical learning. And it could be so significant that, that especially for people from underrepresented backgrounds, simply walking through the front door on day one was a shame trigger. And then upon experiencing struggle, or microaggressions or um, any sort of academic challenge, that shame could be reinforced and, and, and really um, could deepen significantly. Uh, and so this really opened up a gauntlet in thinking about the experience of being underrepresented and the emotional impact at the self level that that, that brings with it. And, and frankly, our lack of ability to um, meaningfully support students and residents as they engage with that experience. I'm going to briefly take you to this slide. This is from our first study when we looked at some of those contributing factors to shame. We found rampant comparisons to others. This was so common. Um, 16 out of 17 of the med student or 15 out of 16 of the med student interviews included comparisons to others as a contributor to shame. We found a significant focus on performance um, insofar as um, particularly objective performance driving feelings of self-worth. So I get a high grade. I'm at the top of my class. I crush the MCAT, therefore I feel good about myself. And over time, in order to continue feeling good about myself, I have to continue performing at a very high level. And in the midst of inevitable challenge in sustaining that, my self-worth is really hangs in the balance and, and can lead to shame. Um, coupled with this pretty closely were just incredible perfectionist tendencies across these studies, all three of them. Um, and I don't wanna say perfectionism is all bad uh, in, in the experience of going through medicine, but it was a strong contributor to shame particularly when it set such lofty goals that meeting them was impossible, thus increasing the, the likelihood or frequency of experiencing shame. And then we found um, that the transition from the more objective environment of preclinical learning, um, and, and, and we're learning now of pre-medical learning into the more subjective, messy, uncertain clinical learning environments could really throw people's self-evaluations and their tendency to experience emotions like shame into disarray. Um, because I've come to rely on these set of contingencies of self-esteem that were relatively predictable, um, that I controlled. If I did this amount of work, I got this grade. Um, and, and suddenly, not only have they evaporated, as one participant said, it's like I'm being measured more and more with less and less of a measuring stick during intern year. But my reliance on those those um, contingencies of self-esteem, particularly the scores and numbers has persisted. So this transition into that more subjective space uh, in all its messiness really con um, contributed to shame in many of our folks. And then fears of judgment, which were very salient in my experiences. Um, and I think for whatever reason in healthcare, we, we carry ourselves with a lot of fear of judgment from others um, commonly. These are the outcomes or the effects that we found is a result of shame experiences in our medical residents. They do mirror many of those that we found in, in um, medical students and pre-medical students. Um, and the net sum of this is that shame is a, is a really challenging emotion that leads to some significant outcomes that we really care about. Um, it's not all bad. There is growth that can come from shame. That is actually the future of the, 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 the focus of future studies. But we found largely that shame, particularly in the throes of it, led to these more negative outcomes that could really impair learning, well-being, and engagement in, in our environment. We also found um, this one other outcome, um, reduced um, self-regulation and unprofessional behavior um, up here in Black. And I want to give you a, a quick insight into to our research process to help paint, help paint this um, effect. 
we had a participant, this is a participant who wasn't selected as chief resident. And this was like his life goal. So much hung on this um, in terms of his self-worth and his self-concept and identity. And much to his surprise, he was not selected to become the chief resident. And this led to a major crash in his, in his um, self-evaluation, significant immediate shame during which um, he was working in the emergency room a day or two later. And he reflected, um, you know, I, I had zero emotional fortitude at that time. I was presented with negative feedback from an attending. I had no resilience to regulate my more primitive instincts, he said, and hold back my true feelings. And thus I cussed out the ER attending in impressive fashion who gave me this feedback I did not want to hear. And he, I remember, and this is, is a program director, I can really appreciate this. He said, and got kind of sheepish and quiet when he said this, he said, you know, the program descended on me rapidly later that day uh, when, when word about this got back to the leadership and therein kicked off a, a really significant and unfortunately increasingly shame inducing remediation process for this individual. The interesting thing, interesting thing happened as we read this, his transcript. So his transcript, the first half was really filled with a lot of defensiveness and sort of projected blame for these outcomes. He was just kind of angry. And, and then it pivoted to the end. And, and I had had the benefit of going through the whole interview, having conducted it, but the researchers on our team didn't. And, and I'm, this is a bit of reflexivity here. Um, these are, these are comments from our researchers um, in the margin notes of this transcript as they read through it the first time. And they reflected early in the transcript. I, I don't see shame. I see anger. In fact, this guy doesn't seem inclined to feel shame. Somebody else said, this, this really feels like a martyr complex, victim complex. It's them attacking amazing me. And it definitely felt like that. And then um, someone who will remain unnamed that you may know, <laughs> one of my favorite margin quotes ever. This guy is unlikable. I, I'd love to meet his wife. And, and this was these were real valid feelings in response to how, how this interview was going. Well, what was important is this is also how the people around him were responding to him. And it's because in the midst of this very hidden and isolated shame reaction behind a sort of a wall of invulnerability were projected feelings that were really attempting to minimize that shame. And these projected behaviors and feelings were and can be very easily labeled as unprofessional and then reacted to relatively harshly, right? So projecting blame, anger, disengagement, um, apathy, not caring anymore. He was putting all these out to the world and they were responding, but what they weren't aware of was the incredible suffering that was going on at an underlying self level. And so we, um, we I drew this piece of art and um, submitted it to academic medicine with our paper. And they said, oh, this is a great concept, but please pay, please pay an artist to do this professionally. So this is what um, a much better illustrator came up with. Um, and it's a really important, I think, notion to keep in mind as we engage with those behaviors that are labeled unprofessional um, and before we react um, to them in a way that might worsen the shame that could drive them. Um, all right, so I'm going to pivot now to our, our last and most recent study about what shame feels like. Um, and it, the, I'm going to tell you, this is where the parts in the whole really come into play. So we, we looked at once shame is present, how does it make us feel? What does it make us want to do? Um, what are, what is the kind of the hardcore phenomenology of it? And I'm not going to go into depth about this table at all, except to show you that, um, or illustrate the incredible complexity of this emotional state. Not every one of these is going to be present in any given reaction, but, but the fact that this number of processes and affective feelings and action tendencies and so on are occurring in this emotional state is incredible. And what's even more incredible is that it's so often done silently that all this can be going on. And, and to you, the outside observer, you may have no idea how I'm feeling or that I'm going through any of this because of the tendency to hide it and need to be stoic. So we work with a, a really um, brilliant illustrator to highlight the essence of this study, the ultimate essence of this study was that shame is a destabilizing emotional state, that it throws us off our axis like it did for me. One, two, one or two participants said it's like an emotional vertigo, which I think is such a rich term. Um, and I just give a quote here from how that can sound. We worked with an illustrator out of the UK. Um, it was really brilliant to take our data and to help create some um, illustration around what this phenomenology might feel and look like. 
um, because shame is such a three-dimensional construct. And, and I'm going to take you through briefly these panels. So in this first panel, something's happening um, in the upper left here. And you can fill in the blanks about what this is. It's in a clinical learning environment. This person's beginning to have some sort of an emotional reaction. Um, and this emotional reaction is, is, includes feeling very small, having an immediate sort of um, physical response, fight or flight, nausea, fear, anxiety, much of which I experienced. Um, and then, then there being really profound feelings of judgment. Um, these eyes were, the artist depicted these based on my own story and some of the stories from our study, um, those kind of judgmental eyes. And then many of our participants talked about the need to, in the midst of what we call an affective upswell, hide the emotion that came along with it, the external emotion because they didn't want to see other people, they didn't want other people to see them suffering externally. And so they would run to a bathroom stall, to a stairwell, leave the building to go and, and sort of minimize and hide that distress. What could happen afterwards for many, and this is not all shame experiences, but this was a recurrent pattern, was that after that affective upswell died down and often in relative isolation, the cognitive capacity that was taken up by those intense feelings and the fear and the anxiety, with that waning, it made more room for those deeper self-evaluations, those more intrusive thoughts about what does this mean for me, the person? And, and this is where the shame could really begin to take root. It was after that affective upswell and in isolation. And, and the artist depicted this beautifully as, as emotional energy, like a swirling energy. And if you've experienced shame, this is a lot, this is really what it can feel like. If left unabated, if this process is able to, to gain energy, if it isn't intervened upon by the person or somebody else, it can gain, it can gain depth. It can spiral. It can, we use the metaphor of dominoes, like dominoes beginning to, to fall to not only engulf me as a professional, as a student, but me as a person, me as a caregiver, me as a spouse, me as a, me as a, a human living on the planet, that shame because I made an error can turn into shame about who I am globally as a person. And we call this a, a shame spiral. Um, and, and the energy increasing, the, the self-talk deepening. Critically, this is a very important construct or, or um, part of the phenomenology of this experience that we've identified is what we call the skewed frame of reference. And this is depicted here through the distortion of the environment around the person, through the person's eyes, which is that when we're in a deep or even a not deep shame state, it can be very difficult to accurately self-assess in accordance with contextual reality, meaning that we view ourselves much more harshly than objective reality would dictate or that someone else outside of our head would, would feel. And this skewed frame of reference can really take us into these difficult places that are inappropriate, frankly, um, given the transgression or the event um, that can really deepen the shame and make recovery harder. Okay, so with all that said, um, this is the hardest part about uh, Grand Rounds style talk is that somehow I've got to take all that and, and channel that into some key takeaways uh, and what we can do. And I'm going to I'm going to um, come back to this illustration at the very end and, and really hopefully um, provide some resolution to it. Um, the question that follows all of this, I mean, the, the many questions, but I think one of the global ones is how do we take recognition and knowledge and the ability and desire to and willingness to open up about this emotion? and to make it real and allow it, how do we do that and mitigate the shame that is unnecessary or eliminate the shame that's unnecessary in our environments and then leverage that which inevitably is going to remain for growth and for resilience? And I think this is a million dollar question. And I think it's a million dollar question for our entire enterprise, because I think shame has that big of an effect um, on the experience of learning medicine. The first thing we've got to do, and I am, I am a, I will praise the quality of the burnout literature up and down. It's been exceptionally well done. Um, it has taken on an outsized role in our conversation about what it means to be well and human in, in medicine. Um, and we, we've got this elephant in the room that is, I think, um, sitting on things like shame and those other constructs that are difficult to measure. Our reliance on measurement to help explain some of the phenomenon that occur in our environments has led to some rather narrow ways of understanding those experiences that, and we've got to examine that and make room for these other messier constructs. 
Um, in terms of advancing shame resilience in healthcare, which I would define as the ability and the willingness to proactively, wholeheartedly engage with shame, as painful as it may be, in a way that allows us to move through that experience and not around it, not away from it, but through it so that we can build our self-concept, enhance our resilience and, and, and promote connection and community with others. To do that, we, we first have to be aware of this emotion. Um, and it's just an emotion that naturally wants to be outside of our awareness because it stinks to experience and it's painful and it's uncomfortable. Even the mere word shame has a connotation to it. Um, we need to be thinking about the possible, um, the potential that shame could be occurring with some of the events I told you about, almost maybe inherently within something as challenging and as daunting as learning medicine, that shame may be embedded. And it almost certainly is embedded into many of the structures we built to provide that education. We need to listen for it. I've given you a lot of the self-talk of shame. If you hear those words, if you hear those negative global descriptions in a colleague, in yourself, in a, in a learner, that's a flag that there could be a shame reaction happening. And we need to look for it. People who experience shame go inward. They're insular. They make themselves small. They don't meet your eyes. They disengage or withdraw. Pay attention to those cues. If you notice that shame may be present or you think it's there, we have to ask about it. And this is a this is an important and courageous question, although it's not that hard to ask um, because we're all human and experience these things. We've got to go beyond the question of how are you feeling? This is a good one to, to, to open up, but it has to go further to how are you feeling about yourself? This is the only way that we are reliably going to get to that deeper level of self-evaluation that's distinct from those basic emotions that are easier to talk about. So how are you feeling about yourself as I give you this difficult feedback, as you recover from this error, as you go retake this test? Once we've identified the shame, right, that it's there, oh, I'm feeling terrible about myself, like I don't belong here, I'm, I'm the worst student. Oh my gosh, okay, you're experiencing shame. This is a real thing. I just heard a talk about it. There's papers about it. There's a Brene Brown TED talk about it. Shame is real and it's so painful, but it's really common. I have experienced it, normalize it, and share your own story. There's, I think, few things more powerful than someone in a position of power and authority opening up and sharing about their own struggles, especially with something like shame. It can be remarkably transformational in unskewing that frame of reference, um, especially for someone at a lower end of that hierarchy. And then we need to help them transition the blame. And I'll explicate that in a minute. Um, importantly, the, the support we provide needs to be active and prolonged. As I mentioned, as a shame, bad shame reaction can take root, the shame tends to grow over time. And after that affective upswell dies down, we tend to withdraw support after that affective upswell dies down because the person seems fine. They're no longer tearful or crying. Um, but this delta, this gap here can be really problematic as the suffering may increase and the support may be withdrawn. So we've got to provide active support. We've got to continue checking in with people. Um, we've got to really show them that we care through relationship building and trust and not just make our check-ins a one-time thing with the ultimate goal of helping to mitigate and then um, move through in a resilient manner that shame experience. We've got to stop intentionally shaming people in medical education period, full stop. It is not an effective pedagogical strategy. Yes, shame experiences lead to learning. Inducing shame will almost certainly lead to some form of learning. But as one of our participants said, I wish I could have learned without all that emotional baggage. If you go back to that table I put up, think about the cognitive load that is taken up by all those aspects of a shame experience and how much capacity that leaves for new learning right? It's just not a, a, the most effective or necessary way to teach. And we need to stop intentionally shaming people. However, we can leverage the power of guilt instead. Don't let that distance, that negative uh, emotional state go to waste, right? Help the person by focusing on actions they can fix, practicing self-compassion, transitioning the blame off of them and onto something they can fix, and then orienting them towards growth. And then believing in them when, when you tell them to get back out there and, do, and try again. Uh, and, and sort of maintaining a support in that way. And finally, the last point I'll make is, is a more global one that um, none of those things in the long list of other things that I wish I could have time to talk about is going to work effectively or to the extent we need it to unless we address our environments 
right? And this is, I could do a whole afternoon workshop on this, but we do have to commit to the establishment of psychologically safe, truly inclusive environments, not just diverse and representative, but truly inclusive, where we mitigate, not eliminate, but we mitigate competition, where we nurture authentic self-expression. Can people come to work and learn and be themselves, their authentic selves in our environments? Can we value adaptive perfectionism, whereby our failures of perfectionism lead toward chances for growth as opposed to shame? Um, can we, can we um, facilitate growth mindsets? And, and ultimately, we must guarantee respectful treatment in our environments is a, is a minimum precondition of, of medical training. If we can do all these things, if we can leverage those shared experiences, normalize the emotion, provide the safety and the inclusion and the authentic self-expression that are needed for us to be whole people, we have the opportunity to take these experiences of shame and to move through them in a way that builds connection, advances resilience and promotes engagement in, in medical education. So with that, um, I'll stop and Tony, I'll turn it over to you. Outstanding, so good. Thank you so much, uh, Will. I know we're getting close to the end of the time. I, I can stay on as long as we need to. I'm not sure, uh, Janet, if we can stay on longer, but I know folks have to jump, please do that. We can uh, stay on as long as need be. Um, okay. And there are lots of questions in the chat. Yeah, so so this has been great. The, the cool thing for me is I've, I've watched Will progress through this work since the early days. And you know, I thought the stuff he presented early on was fantastic. It's just gotten better and better. And his slides are amazing and, and the illustrations are are fantastic. So kudos to, to Will and just taking it to the next level. Um, so yeah, I will try to, so one question that was asked early on, I think this is another one of those million dollar questions that we probably don't have a simple answer to, but I'll go ahead and read it. What steps need to be taken in the medical culture to change the tolerance of mistreatment by superior, quote unquote superiors in academic and clinical learning environments? In my experience, abuse is prevalent and yet not systematically challenged or redressed. I mean, yeah, million-dollar question. So, what do you what do you think? That's a huge question, and I think it, it comes from a recognition that we all need to make that, despite all of our attention on mistreatment, it's not going away. Um, and I think there's a lot of reasons for that. I think maybe the the foremost of which is that it's just it's become culturally embedded. It's pedagogically embedded. Um, it's there are cycles of mistreatment that persist because it was the way that I was trained. It worked for me. And, and therefore it should continue. I also think we, we all endure really challenging work environments that tax us in a lot of ways. And, and I think that there are some understandable responses to that um, emotional distress that, um, that we aren't engaging with fully. One, how do we, how do we, what do we do about it at this point? I mean, in, in addition to just maintaining zero tolerance policies or attempting to, which takes a lot of I think courageous leadership and institutional commitment, you know, and, and sometimes some financial um, impacts and um, reputational impacts, et cetera. One of the ways that we might come at this from a different angle is to, to bring the emotional impacts of that treatment more into the light. There's an ethical and moral argument to be made about the effects of mistreatment on the individuals that, that trust us with their training. And it is immoral. In, in an environment where people are um, hierarchically susceptible for us to mistreat them um, and, and humiliate them. It's immoral. And I think, and it's also incredibly emotionally damaging. We need to collect those stories. We need to tell those stories. And then we need to all rely on our kind of common sense of humanity. I mean, my God, we're, we're, we're health professions education and we mistreat people. Like that is a, that is a paradox that cannot we, we cannot wrap our heads around that, right? So we've got to engage with that paradox. And, and then I think maybe we leverage these emotions and the stories to help really drive a sense of urgency to address it. Thanks. Um, you know, one thing that I've heard people said, I've presented some of this work on your behalf in the past. And one thing you'll often get from the crowd as well, I think we're, we're being too soft on our learners and we've got to stop babying them. But I've heard you say, Actually, if you do this right, you can be you can be in some ways harder on them, but in the right way. Can you speak to that idea? Yeah, I mean, this is it's this is definitely not about being soft. It's about being it's about being supportive in pushing people to the highest levels of self actualization. Um, you know, I don't some some of what what is defined as hard and soft 
I mean, I'm, it's almost certainly there are some ugly undercurrents to that, right? That are racist or misogynist or no, at minimum, very outdated that we maybe we need new conceptualizations of what it means to be not hard, but but resilient or not soft, but vulnerable, you know? And so we need to change our language for one, two. Um, I mean, I'm a residency program director of a very challenging residency program and we push our folks hard. Um, and one of the ways that we do that and keep them intact or attempt to is really orienting them towards growth, mitigating the competition among them, keeping them focused on the ultimate goal, which is service to community and society and addressing social determinants of health and injustice. We're all competing against those things. We, why are we competing so much against each other? And so um, the biggest thing I would say is, is just to be to focus on the things that people can fix and improve as you push them to grow. And you can do that in ways that really hold their feet to the fire, um, but also do it in a way that builds a sense of self. Excellent. I couldn't agree more. Let's see. I'm trying to work through. There's several uh, more comments. Lots of thanks, thank yous, and outstanding slides, which I think we can all agree with. Um, yeah, some of these are real long. I don't think we have time, but um, well, I see one here. Let me just. Somebody mentioned yeah. having having private spaces to be alone and reflect. I, I, that is a great point. I would just maybe make a, a jump to, uh, you know, there's a lot talked about um, debriefing after medical errors and events that are distressing patient deaths. What I think might be lacking from those debriefs, um, in addition to maybe a private, quiet, reflective space is, is a focus on the emotional impact of those and not just how are you feeling, but hey, how are you all feeling about yourselves right now after this event in which our team failed to make a patient better or did something that may have hastened their death? Um, that again, we need to get to that deeper self-conscious level as we do some of this debriefing. Um, you know, I'm, I've been a proponent in Duke surgery is I'm just, I'm starting to really bend their ear on this of, of the emotional morbidity and mortality conference. Like, can we, can we take someone through an emotional m, &M that, that takes them into our emotional reactions to an error and not just the systematic things that led to it? Um, in doing all these things, uh, I think we can, you know, humanize ourselves. Um, if I know we're almost at time, I have one more minute. I just see another good question here, Tony. Is it okay if I answer it? Yeah, go for it. Um, just how do we effectively help educators see the harms of shame-based education? Um, and that's such a good question. I mean, I, I, we, we need more resources. I mean, we um, we have a on my, our website, theshamecombo.com, There's a, um, a documentary-style film, seven minutes long, that talk, you know, where we talk with people about their shame. And some of those conversations are really enlightening in, in that they talk about these like single conversations or um, events where they were treated harshly by someone that really led to um, prolonged distress and altered pathway through medicine, et cetera. We need more resources like that, where people can just go and hear about and see about these things and, and that drive a sense of awareness. On the other end, though, we, we just need to be talking about this more in our environments. I mean, if you create the right forum, one that is safe and confidential and um, where there's shared vulnerability, and you you got you to gotta sort of mitigate hierarchy, but you can have these conversations with trainees in a really open and authentic way, and they can be very, very eye-opening and enlightening. Um, and so I would encourage all of you in a forum like that or in a one-on-one -on -one setting to just be willing to, to go there with folks. I think you'll find that they're more than ready to talk about it. They just haven't really had the opening to do so. Great. I just, oh, can you hear go me? Go ahead. Yep, we can hear I, you. I'm just going to keep it brief, Dr. Bynum. Um, I think I echo everyone. That was, I'm a psychiatrist. I, that was literally one of, if not one of the best talks that I've heard about shame and a very complex concept. And I think that you've given us so much information, such a useful language. I was so appreciative of just the comments that I saw. I mean, I, I just want to say thank you. I thought that was really, it was phenomenal. It was phenomenal. And I just want to express my heartfelt thanks. That was phenomenal. And I think, as you said, with shame being the elephant in the room, um, that's also going to be able to talk for us to be able to, if we start to talk about shame, we can then start to talk about clinician suicide. And, and I, I just thank you. I just thank you.
And I also, I loved your original artwork. I, I, I actually, I did. I, I, because that to me captured how we actually all felt like that, that inner child. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Oh man. Um, uh, you know, I'll find some, some outlet somewhere that'll publish it. <laughs> and Charles, I hope that our institution is ready to call mistreatment and wrong. And I know you've been calling for it a long time and it's, I have no other word. Yeah, I think your point about you've got to be willing to, there may be a financial cost, but if you're actually committed to it, that that's where you put your money where the, your mouth is. Well, I think we just need to, you know, we need to hold out there in front of ourselves. Um, we, and we need to really examine what it means, again, that we mistreat people in the course of training, you know, healthcare providers you know, think about the end product, you know, I mean, I was in the military, I deployed with special operations. I interacted with uh, Navy SEALs and Green Berets. And, 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 and in fact, I did a combat skills training environment. And, and there was, I experienced way less shame there and way better treatment than I did at a trauma refresher course in an academic teaching hospital that, that, and, and in the military, they were training war fighters, right? That, that would need to potentially endure being shamed. Should they be captured? We are not training, we are training doctors and nurses and occupational therapists and health professionals. I mean, why does mistreatment need to be a part of that? And why is it a part of it? And, and that is such a simple logic that I think it is defied by the fact that our environments are the way they are, that if we just recognize that and maybe accept it, we have to do something about it because it's just so illogical. Yes. Well, thank you again, Dr. Bynum. Thanks everyone for coming. This, this has been recorded so we, we can share it widely. Jeanette will send out a bunch of resources and links, all the stuff I've been putting in the chat. We'll send that around. And uh, again, we thank you for, for coming today. And thank Thanks for having me. Thank you, Will. I appreciate all the, the really great comments and questions. Um, please keep in touch.